A product you can't help but buy, a business model based on addiction. It might be a public health nightmare, but it was a dream come true for at least one part of the capitalist class, and the tobacco industry is going all out to defend it. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program we appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show richard wolf is the co-founder of the organization democracy at work and the author of many books the latest being the sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself you can check out his work at rdwolf.com, and that's rdwolff.com. Professor Wolf, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Well, I mentioned in the introduction or alluded to, of course, nicotine and cigarettes, and the Biden administration is considering requiring tobacco companies to lower the nicotine in all cigarettes sold in the U.S. to levels at which they are no longer addictive. Professor Wolf, it's not a newsflash that cigarettes are bad, but this is a confirmation that all parties, those who are in the tobacco industry, the big corporations, and the government that says it cares, that this entire business model is based on promoting addiction. When you think about the fact that America has one out of every four prisoners in the world, that's 2.3 million people are in American jails and prisons. A huge number of them are in prison because they're addicted or because they may be promoting products that are addictive, drugs. But here you have some of the biggest capitalists in America relying on a business model that is based on addiction. And it's noteworthy that it says that this ban would only be for the American market. And we know that Marlboro can't you know, name any cigarette manufacturer that you want or brand. These are worldwide products. Anyway, I want to get your thoughts. Well, I think it's a wonderful topic because it exposes something about capitalism that its defenders tend to shy away from when they don't just straight out hide it. And that is the following. There is an incentive built into capitalism to produce companies that rely on addiction. Let's remember what addiction literally means, that the human being as an animal, which is what we all are in part, the human being has a chemistry and a structure 
that can make you desperately needy for certain kinds of goods or services. So needy that we call it a kind of mental and physical injury, a mental and physical problem, summarized by this word addiction. Why is capitalism an incentive? Because if you can get a person, let alone many persons, to be addicted to whatever it is you produce as a capitalist businessman or woman, well, then you are assured of a market. Getting a market for your output is a problem for every capitalist. You cannot stay in business, no matter how brilliant the commodity you produce, no matter how efficient your system of producing it is, you will go out of business if there's no one left at the end of the day to buy whatever it is you produce. And if you want to grow and build your industry, you've got to produce more, which means you've got to sell more, which means you need a market. Instead of having to persuade people with costly advertising, how much better would it be if you could hook your product in to addiction, to addictive behavior, to make it something that people are desperate to get a hold of, to the point where they will exhaust their energies, exhaust their savings, exhaust their access to any kind of money so that they can buy this object that you produce. In effect, you would have created a permanent, desperate market that will sustain your company. This way capitalism is set up, there's a desire to do that if you can possibly do it. So, of course, yes, the cigarette producers, those producing nicotine products, are in a position to have learned at some point in the past, oh my, we could get an addicted market. And they did. They were perfectly aware of it. The documents years ago, when the whole issue came up, were clear emails and letters and all kinds of documentation that they were well aware. And the reason they did not do anything about it is what I just said, that an addicted population secures a market for the capitalist who serves the addiction. And nicotine is just one example. Let me give you a few more. Alcohol, the business of producing alcohol. You can get people addicted to alcohol. They drink huge quantities of it, which they have to pay for. This is the market for the companies that produce whiskey or beer or wine or any of the other products that contain alcohol. We now have an enormous industry that enables you to gamble. We know there is addiction to gambling. In addition to Alcohol Anonymous, we have Gambling Anonymous, etc., etc. Let me give you some examples that you may not be quite so familiar with. Junk food. Food that is made artificially sweet or salty or tasty in one way or another can become addictive. 
And the companies that make these things are not naive. They are not ignorant. They're fully aware that an addicted buyer is a more secure market than a non-addicted buyer. And to imagine that they are unaware of this or are not concerned or are committed to dealing with this sad problem, like certain ads put out, I noticed the alcohol industry says, please drink responsibly in some of their ads. Oh, yeah, sure. They want you to drink responsibly, having spent an entire lifetime, my entire lifetime, and those of people listening to this program doing everything in their power to advertise the joys, the pleasures, the conviviality of alcohol consumption. And the same applies to fast food of every kind. There is very little effort spent to teach people nutrition, to teach them in a systematic way. And even that information is pervade with thought of a doctor speaking to you or a brochure handed to you. Compare that to the endless, glitzy advertisement in every corner store. Get these potato chips. Eat these salted nuts, whatever the issue is. And fast food has been shown a thousand times to be a major cause of the obesity epidemic of this country. Obesity has, as one of its roots, not the only one, but as one of its roots, an addiction to food that isn't good for you. And yet we permit it to go on. One more example. The most efficient way to move people around a city, or for that matter, between cities, which is where most people live, in or around cities, and they move in or between cities. The most efficient way to do that is with public transportation. Buses, trains, street railways, vans, they will cost less in the way of using up fossil fuels. They will pollute less. I could go on. You know what it's all less than? The private automobile. It's extremely inefficient in a society to produce masses of private automobiles which actually sit unused most of the time in your driveway, in your garage, in your parking spot. They're used a little bit each day. And when they are used, they cause tens of thousands of injuries waste vast amounts of money in accidents, pollute the air, and are inefficient in using all other resources, paint, plastic, metal, and all the other things. Yet we have a massive, a massive advertising for the private automobile, a massive subsidy of the private automobile in the road system we have, and by comparison, very little in the way of advertising for mass transit, for the efficient way to travel. And there's no mystery why this happens. The car industry and the entire set of industries built up around the private car industry, repairing it, maintaining it, replacing it every few years. The profits there are spectacular. 
And they're the reason we don't wean people off of what is an addiction to the private automobile. And this is happening in other countries too. So if you're looking for what one of the root incentives for capitalists in our system is, it's to getting people addicted to whatever it is they produce. And I stress it this way because I keep hearing defenders of capitalism, and after all, this is a socialist program, defenders of capitalism saying, well, it has an incentive. There are incentives for people to start businesses. There are incentives for people to build their businesses. True enough, there are such incentives. But capitalism becomes equipped not only with the incentives that are positive and lead to good outcomes, but it has plenty of incentives to very negative decisions and behaviors that have horrific. And let me close with the one that should be on everyone's mind. Many museums in this country have wings called the Sackler Wing, named after the Sackler family, which was the producer of one of the most addictive opioids, OxyContin, in history. And they knew, as we now know, because their cases are in the courts, they knew very well that millions of Americans were addicted to the opioids in general and to their particular products, OxyContin and so on in particular, giving them an addicted market, which made them billions of dollars, which then in part they donated to various museums and universities, who are now, by the way, busily removing the Sackler name precisely because it has now been linked to using addiction to make a lot of money. So the system has incentives, all right, but any honest assessment would have to look at the incentives that are positive alongside the incentives that are horrific. Cigarettes take the lives of about 480,000 people in the United States each year. 480,000, more than all the American deaths during World War II. And nicotine, the role nicotine plays in the cigarette is important because nicotine doesn't cause heart disease. Nicotine does not cause cancer. The function of nicotine in the cigarette is its addictive quality. It's purely in the cigarette for its addictive function. And it's a complex addiction. I mean, when you talk to smokers, and I used to be a smoker, and, you know, I always used to say quitting's easy. I've done it a thousand times because you try to quit and quit and quit and you have a hard time. And eventually, hopefully people do quit. But this nicotine and this addiction is the thing that keeps it going. And you become addicted when you're smoking cigarettes. Most people, when they're children, when they're teenagers, certainly for myself, Myself and friends started having cigarettes at age 15. We were addicted almost immediately. Again, when you think about it in that way, 480,000 dead, nicotine there simply to keep people addicted, to keep buying cigarettes over and over again every day and smoking them no matter what the health consequences, not because they love it. At a certain point, almost all smokers, maybe not everyone, but almost all smokers want to quit because you're getting nothing out of it. You're simply an addict. 
And yet this entire business model exists. Everybody knows about it. And the Biden administration says, we're considering, we're considering forcing the reduction in the amount of nicotine, the addictive element of a cigarette. Now you think here's the American government, like what entity is more powerful than the American government, the US government? But again, it just says so much about the system as a, as a killer. I mean, Biden said the other day when he was asked, is, is Putin a killer? He said, yes, he's a killer. Well, I mean, capitalism is a killer. Yeah, and you have to wonder again, I'm going to use uh, the private car as an example. The industry understands that it has cultivated in a thousand ways, which by the way, there are plenty of articles and books that lay all of this out. Nothing I'm saying is unknown or secret or hidden. They know that their advertising for the last century that we've had cars as a significant commodity in our society, there has been massive investment in a thousand advertisements, in a thousand motion pictures, in every art form in this country, a kind of celebration of the automobile. It's how you move around. It's how you start dating as a young person. It's how you are free. This association of my personal freedom with the ability to jump into a nearby automobile and race around the countryside with my friends and so on. That the industry has understood that the way to cultivate this addiction is never, of course, to speak of addiction, but instead to associate it with something positive like freedom. I want the freedom to be able to do this thing. Carefully avoiding what the freedom costs. And if you think about it logically, that's crazy. We don't allow people the freedom to drive through an intersection whenever they freely feel like it. When there's a red light, they are not going to be allowed to cross the intersection. Their freedom to go through the intersection when there's a red light is constricted by the government because it will send a trooper and he will arrest you, stop your car, give you a ticket or summons because you have violated a law. Your freedom is restricted, but there's a reason for it. It improves public health. By having the lights there, your freedom constricted makes it safer for people going in the other direction to cross the intersection. We all know that. We all understand it. We abide by the red and the green light, and we're critical of people who forget to do so or deliberately don't do so. We can see the horrible car accidents that happen if you don't observe the lights. Well, explain to me, please, why it isn't the same for a whole host of other things. Why should companies be free to add an addictive substance to something that people buy and put into their bodies? Why would we do that? Yes, it's constricting our freedom to not let us have in every store a pile of horrible for you, chemically constructed, quote unquote, foods. Yes, it constricts our freedom. 
but it makes us live longer, healthier lives, just like constricting our freedom to go through the traffic intersection, regardless of the red and green light. It is spurious. It's fakery. It's advertising to play on a, quote, positive freedom without ever telling you in an honest way what the costs of that freedom are. All across our lives, and you can think of many examples if you put your mind to it, our freedoms are constricted in order to make life decent. I am not free to walk up in the street and punch you in the face. If I do that, I get arrested. I am not free. But we all understand that having people not free to punch us in the face is a positive aspect of communal life in our town, in our village, in our house. And it's bizarre in our society. It's as bizarre to use freedom as a defense for capitalists ripping us off through addiction as it is to not understand that the system has an incentive for this kind of bad behavior is a misunderstanding of capitalism's strengths and its weaknesses. I'm glad you mentioned the issue of behavior because the person who's addicted to cigarettes or addicted to fast foods, addicted to soda, addicted to alcohol, addicted to all of the things that are, you know, being advertised and people are being lured into use. And then the people who are doing the luring, the advertising, well recognize the addictive possibility or prospect or inevitability of the use of their product. Then society basically turns on the individual, the same capitalist society, and says basically, buddy, you've got a problem. Now, of course, if you're addicted, you obviously do have a problem. And people all over the country are trying to get off of opioids, stop drinking, stop smoking cigarettes for poor people who are, and working class people and others also, but addicted to playing the lottery, hoping to escape poverty by, you know, having that magic solution, all of these addictive behaviors. And yet the core element of the capitalist model is the addiction model. And to the extent that you're not addicted physically, the advertising, I was just looking up some of the statistics, advertising, I think, is the third biggest industry in the United States, which shows what a wasteful part of society's productive potentiality to to have the third biggest industry being the one that's trying to convince the rest of us to buy things that we might not otherwise buy. You see that the addiction element is sort of ingrained and fundamental, foundational to the system. But then when people are victimized by addiction, it's their problem. So, you know, you go to AA, 12 steps. We admit we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. I came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. All of that is well and good because people are using whatever means they can to overcome addictions that are profoundly damaging to their psychological and physical health. But again, in each and every instance, even helping when society deals with the issue of recovery from addiction, 
the culpability of the capitalist institutions that promote it, it's just not there. Well, you also have the horrific, for me, spectacle that first you allow capitalists to do this kind of advertising, to make their product addictive if they can, to cultivate in the population an addiction to whatever it is they produce because that's good business, that allows you to sell more, the system is incentivizing this kind of behavior. And then when people get addicted to the point of hurting themselves, you have a new industry set up, the recovery industry, which makes money by hiring people to help you get off what other capitalists helped you get on to. Nobody wants to face the fact, gee, if it weren't for the profit-driven behavior of the first group of capitalists, you wouldn't have to devote all of these resources to hurting people and then more resources to helping them escape if they can. And here's the worst of it. We're still talking about the nicotine addiction years after it has been exposed, years after the horrible death and illness, lung cancers and lung diseases and emphysema and all the rest were exposed. It's still going on. And we still have people dying in huge numbers from opioid addictions and overdose deaths and all the rest of it. We've been through this. We've seen it. You know why it doesn't stop? Why we're talking about one new addiction with opioid when an old one is, is still around? It's because there's this incentive and companies that we're not even aware of right now are trying to figure out what is the next thing that we can become addicted to. It's not learning that there's a systemic problem here. It's a simple idea. If you remove the incentive, which is the profit motive in capitalism, you could make some real progress here better than what you've been able to do because you wouldn't question, let alone change, the profit-driven system in our society. Do something about the systemic roots of the problem. Otherwise, you open yourself to this criticism. You're not willing to deal with capitalism. You're not willing to confront its negative incentives and its negative consequences, which means you're just diddling around the edges of the problem. You're not dealing with a core cause, and that may explain why this problem is with us to this day. Richard, let's turn to another topic. We've talked a lot about the Biden stimulus or relief package. I'm looking at NBC News. How are stimulus checks being spent? Two-thirds of recipients say they use them for groceries and monthly bills. For all the talk of revenge spending and pent-up demand for travel, just 13% of stimulus check recipients plan to spend the money on discretionary activities or non-essential items. That's pretty revealing. Yes, and the answer is very simple. That's what happens to a society when it becomes as unequal in its distribution of wealth and income as this one has. 
everything now has to be rethought because the economy we once had, which was much less unequal, it was unequal, but much less than what we have become over the last 40 years. We could be confident in the old days that if the government gave a stimulus, it would spread broadly through the society. People weren't desperate. People weren't up to their eyeballs in debt. Of course, if you give them suddenly a check, they are going to try to get the debts reduced. They can hardly carry those that they have. And because they have no savings anymore, and because they've used all of that up, because the economy is the way it is and their wages haven't gone up, yeah, between food and paying off their debts, they're done. They're not going to have the pent-up demand. And here's the other side of that same thing. Because the people who have the money to spend are as rich as they have become, the top 10%, you give them an extra check or any other form of support, they're not going to spend the money. They're going to save it because they're already spending more than they need to sustain their exalted lifestyles. And here's the worst of it. Most of the COVID spending and most of the infrastructure spending that Biden intends will be money either given to large corporations or given to governments who in turn will contract with large corporations. And you know what they'll do with that money? Distribute it as unequally in the future as they've been doing for the last 40 years, thereby reproducing a society that has no mass demand for goods and services. All of the companies that used to serve the average American working class are gone. AMP, the Sears Roebuck, I mean, I could go on. They're all belly up. The malls are all shut. All the middle level stores are on their last breath. Their market has been destroyed. The mass of people have no savings, have no income that they can spend. The money has been concentrated at the top. And they use it to invest in the stock market and the, to buy fancy equipment, but it's not going to keep the economy going. That's why so many companies have moved to China. It's not just that the wages are lower there. That's certainly part of the story. But the other part is that the wages in China, the average wages have quadrupled in the last 25 years, and they've gone absolutely nowhere in this country. That's where the market is growing. And as every honest businessman and woman will tell you, you want to be where the market is growing. And the reality is it's shrinking here, not for the rich, they're still buying. Rolls-Royce announced with great pleasure last week that they're selling more cars than ever. But the mass market in this country is a thing of the past and nothing should surprise us because that's been the way this capitalist system has distributed its income and wealth for the last 40 years, more and more unequally. And Richard, our final point, we can do this briefly because we do it so often, but we want to keep our audience really up to date with the latest statistics about how the billionaires are doing. The world's billionaires added $5 trillion to their wealth during the pandemic. That's $5 trillion. The world's billionaires added more than $5 trillion to their wealth over the last year with the richest 2,700 
and 55 people on Earth amassing more than $13 trillion. I mean, you really have to work hard to get $13 trillion in such a short amount of time, Richard. Yeah. And even if you just focus for the moment within those statistics on the United States, we have a bit over 600 billionaires in the United States. Over the last year, that is the full year of the pandemic we're all going through, 60 million Americans had to file for unemployment, either for a few weeks or for the whole period of time. And at the same time, 600 not 600,000, not 600 million, 600 billionaires increased their wealth by almost a trillion dollars, just them. In other words, the richest 600 people got markedly richer while the mass of Americans suffered unemployment, lost income, used up whatever savings they had. You could not describe a more grotesquely unequal economy, and we're going to be living with the consequences of that as long as we permit that kind of a situation to continue. Yeah, and people have a hard time wondering or thinking about or understanding what a trillion is. But of course, for our audience, a billion is a thousand millions and a trillion is a thousand billions. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, and he's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.